The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Brian D. Estelle. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have called us together once again to meditate upon your word. Uh, We pray that you would grant us that reverence and humility before your word, without which no one can understand truth, especially from the Holy Scripture. And Father, as you do so, we'll make sure that all the glory redounds to Christ, your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome to chapel. Our goal in these chapel messages is to have some brief meditation uh, on a section of scripture, um, um, about uh, 20 minutes, uh, 15, 20 minutes, and uh, then to have uh, donuts since we're uh, honored with many guests this morning and coffee for those that want to stick around and, and chat. Um, We are assigned as faculty members to pick a uh, section from the wisdom literature. We could choose anything uh, from Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm actually the guy around here who's assigned to teach the wisdom literature. So it may be a surprise to you that I'm actually going to have you turn to your New Testament. (laughs) Because I want to look at Job... Uh, and the only place in the New Testament where Job is cited, and that's in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. So last time I was up here, we looked at James, which alludes uh, to um, Job as a godly example of perseverance. And uh, as my students know, I'm very interested in allusion competence and quotation theory and how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Uh, so I want to look at this passage uh, from Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, particularly uh, verses uh, 19 and 20. Um, we'll just look at and read verses 18 uh, to uh, the end, uh, but also let me briefly say, notice the context. Uh, this is about divisions in the church and, um, and uh, the way of wisdom and God's church as opposed to the way of wisdom in the world. That's the context in which this uh, passage appears. But picking up at verse 18, let's read what the Apostle Paul has to say here, the very word of God. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. Now, um, one thing that will kill a church Uh, or a seminary, is a party spirit. And it seems that what was going on uh, at this particular time, as if the Corinthians didn't have enough problems of their own already, uh, was that there was a kind of factionalism, a kind of tribalism, a kind of hero worship, if you will. 
Uh, one was claiming to be of Apollos, and one was claiming uh, to uh, be of Paul. A little reflection, a little surfing on the internet, which I don't encourage, and blogs, uh, will reveal that this portion of scripture has much timely advice for our own day as well, with regards to a kind of unhealthy tribalism. Um, however, this morning I'd like to drill down and focus on something very particular within this wider pericope about divisions in the church. And I chose this passage because, as I mentioned earlier, this is the only citation of Job. There's all kinds of allusions to Job, but this is the only citation of Job in the entire uh, New Testament. And what's interesting here is when you look at how the apostle is using this citation from Job. Uh, first of all, I think it's helpful to think about Eliphaz in church history. Uh, these words that are quoted are actually from one of Eliphaz's uh, speeches. And you remember Eliphaz is one of uh, Job's so-called friends, these friends who come in his tribulation, in his deep sorrow, and try and bring consolation. Unfortunately, they use the retribution principle uh, that's so prominent in Job. The retribution principle simply stated is the wicked get their comeuppance and the righteous get their comeuppance. The righteous will be rewarded, the wicked will be punished. And they come and they use that as a whip for Job's back, as opposed to being true friends and bring edifying uh, consolation. Now, most modern interpreters have viewed Eliphaz and the rest of his cohorts, the other friends, in a negative light. After all, he and his friends uh, do what I just said, but they also uh, don't receive the nod from God at the end of the narrative of Job in chapter 42, verse 7. Uh, Job gets the nod from God, but they don't. Um, but that was not always the way the church has read. Uh, the speeches of Job's friends. And so we need to be careful that we don't always read the speeches of Job's friends in a negative light. So for example, even Clement of Rome actually drew upon this same text in his day in the ancient church and cited it with approval. In First uh, Clement 39, uh, section 4 to 9, he actually uh, draws upon Eliphaz's point about human vulnerability and uh, fragility out of Eliphaz's speech in Job 4 and 5 uh, in order to warn against the sin of pride. Uh, now this is an important point um, because um, we don't always want to look at what Eliphaz or the other friends are doing uh, in a negative light. When you look at Eliphaz and Job, you see from the vantage point of the infinite wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world is seen to uh, introduce folly or potential folly in at least a couple of ways. And you can see this when you look at Eliphaz and Job. As one great Princeton exegete summarized it in his comments uh, on Paul's quote of Job here, even truth or true knowledge becomes folly if employed to accomplish an end for which it was not adapted. So even truth or true knowledge becomes folly if employed to accomplish an end for which it is not adapted. In other words, Eliphaz uses true statements, uh, but he makes a very bad misfire in the application of it uh, to uh, Job's situation and hence uses 
These true statements as a scourge for Job's back with no edifying or consolatory emphasis whatsoever. And this principle seems to fit Eliphaz and his friends like a glove uh, in the narrative of Job. As Tremper Longman would say, and I quote, Paul would say that Eliphaz is right in general principle, but wrong to apply that principle to Job in his situation. And we see this even in scripture. Uh, what I'm telling you is affirmed uh, by the narrative of Job at the very end in chapter 42, uh, because uh, if you remember, a major question uh, throughout the book of Job is, did Job sin by putting God in the dock, by questioning what was going on? That's a huge issue we don't have time to get into right now. But at the end of the book, uh, Job's friends are condemned by God as sinning, but not so Job. Uh, so, for example, Job 42.7 reads, It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz teaches us in the book of Job that we must exercise great care uh, and in the application of true principles from God's word, or otherwise we trip up into folly. But we've not drilled down deep enough to see how Paul is using the words of Eliphaz even more so. What else can we learn from the way that Paul quotes Eliphaz's words here, not only this applicatory uh, principle? Um, well, there's a second way in which truth or even wisdom or even true knowledge becomes folly, according to Paul, both in his quotation of Job and also Psalm 94, which we don't have time to go into, in the larger context here. And this old prince in exegete states it like this. If a man attempts to make men holy or happy, if he undertakes to convert the world by mathematics or metaphysics or moral philosophy, he is foolish. And his wisdom as a means to that end is folly. Now, this is a very simple principle, but it's profoundly important. For those of you that are students and slugging it out over that Hebrew vocabulary and syntax and text criticism, for those of you who are prospective students and thinking about giving up some of the best years of your life instead of earning money and putting uh, you know, uh, savings away for your children and 529 plans and uh, coming and, and uh, abusing yourself with uh, all the studies that we uh, have here. But listen to what Listen to what Charles Hodge says. If a man attempts to make men holy or happy, if he undertakes to convert the world by mathematics or metaphysics or moral philosophy, he's foolish. And his wisdom as a means to that end is folly. You see, men and women, we must renounce any dependence on illegitimate means to that end, namely to make boys and girls, men and women, um, by the wisdom of the world in any measure, holy, or attempt to convert them according to such methods. The Apostle Paul very subtly is saying, that's folly. 
That's foolishness. Let's drill a little deeper even into exactly how the quote from Job is used by Paul. Literally, the quote reads, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, a majority of witnesses to this text that's being quoted here from the Old Greek omit the suffix, their craftiness. Uh, Chapel's not the place to go into a detailed lecture on why it should be maintained, even though it's the more difficult reading. If you come here and study, we'll teach you how to do that. Um, but that belongs in the last hour in Hebrew 3, not here. Um, and I'm not punting on the details, uh, but chapel's just not the appropriate place for that. But my point is merely to focus on why the apostle chose to quote Job here, and the only place where he chose to quote Job. And I think that this old Princeton exegete is right to know that, as he says, much that passes for wisdom among men is in itself, and not merely as a means to an end, foolishness. And he goes on to say, he means, that is the apostle, means to say that human knowledge is entirely inadequate to save men. Because that end can only be accomplished by the gospel. Close quote. So that's why the apostle quotes this passage. Uh, it's in proof of the assertion that the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. God's chosen the foolishness of the world so that Pastor Kiel gets up here twice on Sunday after uh, uh, racking his brains and his heart and his souls in a prayer over uh, God's, God's word right down the hall there and then comes and edifies us by the ministry of the word and gospel-centered messages week in and week out and with the administration of the sacraments. It's to this end that Paul is concerned to quote Job. So Eliphaz, or at least this little snippet from Eliphaz in our seminary community, what does it mean? Uh, knowing that we don't need another lecture in chapel, I ask the question, well, what use and application does Paul's quotation of Eliphaz have for us as, as men and women, seminary students seeking to uh, glorify God in our studies? And first, I think that it gives us good grounds to resist the temptations of the world to turn elsewhere for wisdom. Wisdom that tries to procure saved souls and holy lives by other means than God has designated. I've been reading this book by Old Testament evangelical scholar Ian Proven called Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, Baylor University Press 2014. Now Ian Proven writes outside the box. Uh, he's a very erudite Old Testament scholar, and uh, basically he writes to our multicultural, uh, diversified world. Uh, his reading is profound and broad. He's not only sensitive to cultural movements like deep ecology, uh, but he's also taking on Islam, he's taking on Buddhism, uh, all the major uh, world religions. Uh, because if you're sensitive at all or read in the mainstream, even magazines like Newsweek and Time and that kind of thing, you know that the Old Testament is constantly gainsayed as a very dangerous book. <laughs> and he says, it is dangerous if read rightly. 
And then he, he says, because it answers these questions. What is the world? Who is God? What are man and woman? Why do evil and suffering happen in the world? What am I about uh, to do about evil and suffering? How am I to relate to God? How am I to relate to my neighbor? Uh, how am I to relate to the rest of creation? Which society uh, should I be uh, attempting to help to rebuild? Uh, what am I to hope for in the future? And so he proceeds to take on in this way that communicates outside the church, outside of the academy, and engages uh, people in these most uh, profound uh, questions, perhaps the most profound questions that could be asked of any human soul. So that's one thing um, that I think um, um, Paul's attempting to show us, to take these scriptures seriously. They are the means by which God has answered these most searching questions that any human soul can ask. But then also, this particular focus helps us uh, in our studies. It helps us as current students and scholars to realize the gravity and the importance of what we're doing here at Westminster. If we just pause for a minute, in the midst of all the Hebrew exams and text criticism and Greek exams and systematic theology and even church history. Um, why are we here? Why do we give up the best years of our lives to do this instead of making money? Um, you know, if we, if we just stop in the middle of our hectic philosophy and say, why am I doing this? Uh, why should we study so earnestly and so seriously? Why should we even consider coming to study and submitting ourselves to, let's be honest, this extremely rigorous uh, curriculum? Because if we want to know the deep things of God, this is the only means that he has made available to do so. I'm not against common grace. I'm not saying we can't learn from general revelation. But for the saving health of mankind, for the gospel, this is it. WSC is not trying to teach the wisdom of the world for this serious enterprise. How do we best communicate the skill sets and discipline to communicate the gospel for the, for the saving healthy human beings? How do we help men, women, boys, girls, sinners, saints to love the Savior? Our main goal is to be the West Point of seminaries as far as training men and women for kingdom work and men for gospel work, administering the sacraments and preaching the gospel. And to do that, we have to be serious about the deep things of God, spiritual matters pertaining to life and work, majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to accomplish that task, I, there's no better way than to go back. Students, present students, if you've not taken the time recently, take a study break, uh, preferably not from Hebrew, but something else. <laughs> And, uh, and not from Dr. Glomford's classes, but uh, or Dr. Kim's, uh, I think I got everybody covered. Um, but those professors that aren't here, take a break <laughs> and go read the charter documents of when Westminster was 
founded. Read, read, read what uh, Dr. Machen said at his opening uh, Westminster Seminary in Witherspoon Hall, Philadelphia on Wednesday, September 25th on 1929. Uh, read, even hard to get, you, give me your email or email me and I'll send you these documents. But read O.T. Alice's article in the Sunday School Times. Lucid, cogent, persuasive, commendable, uh, high principles that basically are explicating the same kind of thing uh, that Paul is doing when he alludes to Eliphaz's words. Foolishness to the world, the wisdom of God. Um, and if you want to impart that wisdom to others for their saving health, um, to the languages you must go. Systematic theology, the center of the curriculum, everything else supports it. Because here's the message that you showcase before the watching world. Uh, to see God's providence in history acting to accomplish his expansion, the expansion uh, of his church through the ages, even though the gates of hell try and, 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 and arise to, to destroy the church and, and, and even through the blood of the martyrs. Uh, nevertheless, um, how edifying to study God's providence working out in the world in the expansion, and yet especially in this age with the missiological movement uh, worldwide. Um, remarkably similar is each man's uh, vision. Uh, Machen, in his um, constant and customary humility, uh, credits Alice's article as even more eloquent than his own. Look, application here, whether you're an MDU student, a historical theology student, a prospective student, a student in one of the other programs here, maybe a visiting student, uh, one of the scholars, professors that are present, a pastor, um, Paul would have us realize that even truth or true knowledge becomes folly if it's employed to accomplish an end for which it is not adapted. That's the first thing. And then secondly, Paul would also have us realize that much that passes for wisdom among men is in itself and not merely as a means to an end, foolishness. But he goes on to say, this writer, as I quoted earlier, he means to say that human knowledge is entirely inadequate to save men. That end can only be accomplished uh, by uh, the gospel. Um, what are we about here? Uh, we're about... Um, capturing that grand vision. <laughs> when you pause and go reflect and read these charter documents, it will, if you read them carefully and meditate upon it, it will help you redouble your efforts so that you'll have the same view that Warfield talked about, that even if you're studying a Hebrew word, thanks be to God that God revealed that Hebrew word for the saving health of mankind. This is the segue into the deep things of the gospel. And that's why we take our work so seriously, because it's about the salvation of souls. It's about the upbuilding of the church. It's about the edification of the saints. It's about, in our own small way, making a contribution to his kingdom expansion, preparing souls, helping them to persevere into the world to come, the new Jerusalem. And learning this, even reaching out to dying and perishing world to proclaim accurately, precisely, boldly, that this wisdom that we're studying, this, these particular disciplines uh, with which we're so seriously 
engage, actually have a message that satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul in a pain-filled world, in a sin-cursed world, riddled and racked with real guilt, troubled consciences, and bitter lives. The wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. Job 5 and Psalm 94, quoted by the apostle. Let's pray. Father, help us uh, to constantly keep the vision uh, before us that you have given us uh, here. Uh, help us never to shirk from our duties. When we do, forgive us. Help us re redouble our efforts. Uh, Lord, uh, we do not know um, how you will use uh, the things that we busy ourselves with, uh, but we long to be pre well prepared to give an answer for that day when we are asked to give an account of ourselves uh, uh, even from gainsayers and from unbelievers, uh, Lord, that we may uh, tell them of the hope that resides in us and also to build up your precious saints. Help us to that end. Uh, thank you for uh, this uh, short snippet that your Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle uh, Paul to include in order to communicate uh, these uh, eternal verities. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name, that you would help us to understand it more, and we'll be careful to make sure it redounds to the glory of Christ. In his name we do pray, amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.